Welcome to the HT Cambridge podcast. For more information, see our website, htcambridge.org.uk. The reading tonight is from uh, John chapter 19, verses 28 to 30, uh, and that's on page 1088 in the Church Bibles. So Jesus has been crucified, he's there hanging on the cross, and then John writes this, verse 28. Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Chris. Am I on? Hello, hello. Great. Um, wow, I, I love, I almost don't want to interrupt a worship time like that. You know, there's nothing, this is why we come to church, isn't it? There's nothing more amazing than God's people coming here just saying, Lord, we give you our hearts, we give you everything. And um, the reason we do that is because we realize the miracle of the fact that God has given, as Paddy prayed, has given his whole heart to us. And that, that's the beauty of what we do when we worship the Lord. That um, as we see the miracle that he thirsts for us, uh, this thirst for him begins to be inspired in us. As he gives himself to us on the cross, as we've, we've heard about, um, we can't respond but, but give ourselves to him and... Um, by way of introduction, my name is Ed. I'm the worship pastor here at HT. You'll usually see me uh, up here playing the drums or uh, leading worship rather than here in front of the pulpit. Um, being the worship pastor here basically means I'm, uh, I look after the musical worship and the technical side of what goes on at HT. Um, but more than that, my real passion is uh, exploring what it looks like to worship in our lifestyle through song, uh, whatever way. What, what does it look like for us to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Now, I love music. Even more than that, what I love is, is, is um, talking to people about, about what it means to love, love the Lord with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, and I love leading worship in the evening services. And we do as a team. I want to say that before I kind of go on to this passage. And one of the reasons we do is because especially what I love is when we get to carry on after the service and um, have a time of extended worship and there feels like such a thirst in the room. You know, there feels like such a thirst for God. It's almost like when I say at the end, okay, we've got to stop now. Um, you know, we could have gone on till midnight or till three in the morning if I hadn't said that, but then we probably would be fired from our jobs the next day because we wouldn't be able to do anything, would we? Um, I love the thirst when we come and worship together in these evening services. Um, but from the sublime to ridiculous, the last time the weather was like this, I remember in Cambridge, my father-in-law was here visiting, and I decided a bit of male bonding was in order. So we decided to go to the cinema to see the film The Revenant. Has anyone else seen this film? It's not for the faint-hearted. Three and a half hours of watching Leonardo DiCaprio get destroyed by the natural world in all its various forms. Probably tells you quite a lot about me um, to say that my favorite part in the film was where Leonardo DiCaprio, isolated in the American wilderness, is attacked by a giant grizzly bear. And it's amazing, miracle of, of modern cinema, 
Um, this kind of computer-generated bear uh, is mauling Leo as he's kind of underneath, you know, you can imagine them filming this because there wasn't actually a real bear, obviously. That would, Leo would never do that. Um, there he is on the floor, you know, mauling around, trying to pretend, you know, what it looks like to be mauled by a bear, going, give me an Oscar this time, please. Um, and, and I, you know, as, as I'm watching this, because I have a lot of time on my hands, and because Rupert had recently told me a story on his sabbatical about when he came face-to-face -face with a bear, do ask him about that later, um, I decided to Google, what does one do if one is attacked by a bear? I promise you that this is going somewhere. So I'm going to read to you from the website, wikihow.com, escape from a bear. That's what it says on the tin. Bears are among nature's most majestic creatures, and seeing one in the wild is an unforgettable experience. Get too close, however, and your encounter with a bear can be more terrifying than awe-inspiring, which is what Leo found out. So here are four tips that it gives you if you come face to face with a bear. Number one, avoid close encounters. Announce your presence when exploring their home environment, perhaps by attaching bells to your clothing. It kind of conjures up the image of some sort of bizarre Canadian Morris dancers moving through the, the wilderness. Number two, keep your distance. Make a wide berth. If a bear sees you begin speaking in a low, calm voice, in brackets, it doesn't matter what you say. I'm glad it pointed that out. I've been thinking I needed to come up with something quite cogent in the face of a bear. But no, it doesn't matter what you say. Three, understand the bear's motivations. This is, this is verbatim. A bit of bear psychology goes a long way. And when I think of bear psychology, I'm imagining a bear kind of stretching out on a chaise long. But I don't think that's what they mean. If a bear attacks at night, it most likely sees you as food and any attack will be predatory. How that's supposed to help in the event of a bear attack, I don't know. Here's where we get somewhere. Step four, stand tall, even if the bear charges you. I've no idea if this is what you did, Rupert, uh, when, you, when you saw that grizzly. Stand tall, even if the bear charges you. If the bear sees you and is closer than 300 feet, remain calm, try to look as large and strong as possible. Stand your ground and try not to look frightened. Don't show any fear or vulnerability. If the bear charges you, muster all your courage and stay where you are. The charge is most likely a bluff. And if you stand your ground, the bear will turn away. Well, if you would do that, if you're attacked by a bear, then my hat comes off to you. Um, but this really interested me, the fact that if, if this, this creature, which is many, many times stronger than you, comes and charges at you, the thing you have to do is make yourself look as big and strong, as unweak, if you will, as possible. You're supposed to imitate strength. And that is what's going to scare off this bear. And as I thought about it, because I love the natural world, I reflected on how this is kind of a principle of nature. You have these dangerous animals, and they're painted in dangerous colors, like yellow and black and red. But then you have these other kind of slightly weaselly creatures, which just paint themselves in those colors. They're yellow and black. There's not actually any danger. But what they do is they, they make themselves those colors so that no one comes near it. They hide their weakness by imitating their strength. They make themselves look stronger than they really are. Well, thinking about this, sometimes we ordinary people um, can do that too. Um, so much of our lives is about the sensible shielding of our own weakness, isn't it? Um, and it's not just about lying or imitating strength for bad reasons. It's sensible. We have health insurance, life insurance, a broad stock portfolio, if you're lucky enough to have that sort of thing, um, which shields yourself against your own weakness. Or perhaps you're confident in your workplace with your friends. You act very able. You don't need anything. Um, but then someone attacks you or something goes wrong, and at home you're a wreck. You crumble. 
But it makes sense to put on that hard exterior to look, cover up your weakness with strength. But then something happens. This happened to my friend last week. Um, you'll all know this feeling where you, someone you know, someone who's close to you, even a couple of degrees of separation, passes away unexpectedly. And this feeling of complete fragility comes onto you, doesn't it? Where you realize all these things we just cocoon ourselves with, all these different forms of insurance, all these different forms of rearing up on our hind legs, going, there's no weakness here, all of this yellow and black. It's just imitation. It's just imitation. Because ultimately, we're fragile and we're weak. None of these things last forever. No protection, no strength is immortal. And we come to this scene at the cross that we just read about. Who looks strong in this scene? Who looks strong as Jesus cries, I thirst? I'd say the Romans look pretty strong in their military imperium, the largest civilization ever seen on the face of the earth, gambling for Christ's clothing. I'd say the Sanhedrin, a Jewish ruling council, looks pretty strong. Not as strong as the Romans may be, but with their own form of power, in charge of what happens to Jesus' life, manipulating the events. Who's weak? Jesus looks pretty weak, doesn't he? There he is, asking his murderers for a drink, stooping to that level with an ironic sign over his head. Here's the king of the Jews being mocked even as he's executed in the most excruciating way. And there he is, I'm weak, I thirst, I have need. There's no yellow and black here, is there? But as we know, 2,000 years later, this God that we worship, he is the strong one in the scene. Here's the one, as Ollie was talking about last week in our morning services, he's the one we still worship. He's the one we still talk about. You know, Rome, that, that great empire, was swept away a few centuries later, wasn't it? In part by the movement inspired by the man under that ironic sign. The Jewish temple, so formidable, the most amazing building any of them had ever seen, well, Jesus said when he was alive, not one stone will be left on another of this temple. And so it came to be in AD 70 as the temple was destroyed. Everything that the Jewish council trusted in blown to smithereens. We disguise our weakness by imitating strength. But the miracle of this passage we just read is that God is disguising his strength by imitating weakness. Why? Why does he do that? Why does he subvert that principle of nature? I think it would be a good idea to pray as we look at it. Lord, we thank you that when you hung on the cross, you hung there for us. We want to give you our hearts. It's our desire that as we see your thirst, as we see what you went through for us, wouldn't just be a concept to us, God. We'd respond in worship. So unlock this passage for us. Unlock your word for us. Amen. So, why does he do this? Three things. God is thirsty. We are thirsty. And the world is thirsty. Firstly, God is thirsty. When Christ is saying, I thirst here, there's something deeper going on. Why is there something deeper going on? Because how many of you know that God doesn't need water. God doesn't thirst. God doesn't need anything. We'll come on to this in a minute. He's chosen to be there. He's chosen to become a man, to need food, drink, 
company, shelter, and all the other things that, that men and women need. Now, um, as we look at this, this uh, phrase here, I thirst, that Jesus said, it's actually just one word in the Greek, uh, dipsao, just one a single word. But there are so many layers within this word of, of why he's thirsting. So, here are some layers. We'll go through from top to bottom. The simplest layer. Well, some phrases that Jesus said, only God can say, right? Only he can say, it is finished, which we're going to look at um, next week. Um, only he can say some of the amazing things that he came out with when he was here on the earth. But other ones, anyone can say, and this is one of them. Any of us hanging there in the Middle Eastern sun whilst being crucified would want to say, I'm thirsty. And that's because, as the title of this talk says, this is the word of humanity. Jesus, at this point, is feeling all of the pain of crucifixion, all of the heat, all of the exhaustion, and he wants a drink. And that's a simple point, but it's worth reflecting on that Christ knows my pain, that he went through that pain for me. Let's peel another layer off. How come this passage is talking about, if you have that passage open in front of you, Jesus, knowing that everything had been accomplished, asks for this drink. What's going on here? Well, the layers get deeper because in Matthew 27, Jesus actually refuses a drink. Here he takes a drink. In Matthew 27, he refuses one. But now that everything has been accomplished, it seems like he's able to have a drink. What's going on here? Well, in Matthew 27, it says that Jesus was offered wine mixed with gall, and he refuses it after tasting it. And what he's actually being offered here is a mix of wine and myrrh in Matthew's gospel. Um, now, myrrh, you know, if you've ever been in a nativity play, um, a type of incense also used to uh, embalm and anoint the dead. But more than that, if you ingest it, it's a narcotic. Dulls the pain, dulls your senses. And in Matthew, when Jesus refuses this drink, what he's saying is, I will not take a shortcut. I will not dull the pain. I will not dull the consciousness of what I have to go through right now on the cross for you. Who knows why he was offered it? Maybe because the Romans grew sick of his cries. But they offered him this, this narcotic and he said no. But here, now that everything has been accomplished, what is that everything? What else but what we heard about last week? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The punishment of God on God, bearing the sins of the world for us. Now that this has been accomplished, he will have a drink. The deed is done. Perhaps he needed that drink just to get out the words we're going to hear about next week. It is finished. So let's pull off one more layer. So that scripture will be fulfilled. What does this mean? Well, as you may know, um, there are about 380 prophecies about Jesus' life in the Old Testament, long, 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 centuries before he ever came onto the earth. And um, you know, some of those are, are miraculous in the sense of it's prophesied he'd be crucified before crucifixion was even invented. It's prophesied that he'd be born in Bethlehem. And it's pretty hard to choose your birthplace, although if you can, Cambridge is a great place to, to be born, um, as my son or daughter will find out in about three months' time. Um, but here's another one, so that scripture will be fulfilled. Can we have this Psalm uh, 69? Go back one. Thank you. Um, Psalm 69. I'm forced to restore. This is David talking, but this is a prophecy of what Jesus did. I'm forced to restore what I did not steal. What an amazing picture of what Jesus did for us. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. Gambling for his, for his clothing, pouring scorn on him. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. And this is amazing because around the time that Jesus is being crucified, there's a drink called Posca, which is like a working class kind of vinegary, sour wine drink. 
Um, and this is what they're offering him in this passage. But this is long before it was ever invented. Uh, and, and this psalm is talking about that, you know, centuries, centuries beforehand. Well, what does this tell us? It tells us that this event before us, miraculously, God thirsting, begging for a drink from his murderers, was planned. It's not an accident that Jesus is hanging up there. It's not just a miscarriage of justice. You know, there's David writing that hundreds of years beforehand because he saw Jesus knew what, exactly what he was going to do, that he was going to hang there, that he was going to thirst. And it says, doesn't it, in this passage that he's offered a drink on a branch of hyssop. Well, this shows his plan even more, and it tells us what his plan is. Because when it shows in this passage that he's given a drink on a branch of hyssop, every single Jewish person there would have known what that meant. They would have thought, Passover. Passover. And the Passover is the story in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, where God's people are taken out of slavery in Egypt. Maybe you know this story. Um, And they're taken through the desert into the promised land in Israel. But Pharaoh would not release these slaves, God's people, Israel. So the thing, the Passover happened is where God brings the final plague on the Egyptians, the plague of the firstborn. I'm sure you, you, you might know this story. Um, where a firstborn of every animal and family dies so that Pharaoh might release these slave children of the Lord. But all of the God's people are told, if you grab a branch of hyssop and daub the blood of a lamb on your doorpost, the angel of death will not come past near you. You will be safe. When this destruction happens, you will be safe. So when John is writing this, that hyssop is used, it's a sign to everyone that what is going on here relates to the Passover closely. And I think it's really helpful for us just to, put, uh, to read a verse from the book of Exodus which tells us what the aim is of God in the Passover. Not moving a people from one country to another, great though that can be. Not just a condemnation of slavery, but here's what the Lord was aiming to do in the Passover and bringing his people out. You yourselves, Israel, have seen how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you'll be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And as we see this event of Jesus drinking this liquid prophesied hundreds of years before, we realize that it's not just the thirst for water that Jesus has here. Or should I say, the thirst for water that he has signifies a far greater thirst, and that thirst is for closeness with you and with me. He wants to bring us to himself. That's what he did to his people back in the the Passover. And right here on the cross, He may have thirsted for water for 30 years, but he's always thirsted. He's always thirsted for us. Because isn't to love to thirst? To love is to thirst. When you love something, you thirst for it. And he loved us. He's bringing us to himself. How do we measure his love? How do we measure the weight of his thirst for us? We measure it by what he gave up. Look at that verse there. Although the whole earth is mine, you'll be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Or it says elsewhere in in the Psalms, if I was hungry, or we could say if I was thirsty, I wouldn't tell you. I don't need you, says God. I don't need anything. And yet, I thirst for you. 
and yet I long to bring you to myself. Though the whole earth is mine, I want you to be, for me, a treasured possession. And this plan that goes back hundreds of years, millennia before time began, is this plan for closeness with you and with me. The miracle that God doesn't need you, but he wants you. He thirsts for you. We could gloss over this, but I want to challenge you. Is this your gospel? Is this the gospel that you believe in? Sometimes it's so easy for us to view the cross as some sort of mathematical balancing or to think that God let us off the hook once. But the gospel we see here before us is Jesus saying, I would do anything for you to be close to me. I thirst for you. Think of that imagery when you thirst for something. It's not something you have to do. It's something you crave. Sometimes we can quote John 3.16, see God's love as this kind of objective force over all of his people. But it's more than that. It's a thirst for you, for you alone, for you as an individual. An amazing testimony. I heard the other day at um, Woman's Breakfast. I was in the band, okay? It wasn't just... <laughs> Plus the muffins are really good. Amazing testimony I heard is um, a lady in our congregation uh, whose husband left her after an affair. Um, you know, you think after something like that happens to you, no one can love me. I'm unloved. I'm unlovable. But she found this verse in Isaiah 54. You've been rejected, but I will be your husband. You know, a picture of, of God saying, you know, he's left, but I love you. I thirst for you. I will be there for you. And, and um, the testimony went on, an amazing story of how there was actually a ceremony performed where this lady in our congregation took her wedding ring off, that symbol of, of broken love, fallen human love, and put on another ring to symbolize the love of God, unbreakable, unquenchable for her. You know, how vulnerable this love of God is. You know, our love, we guard our hearts, don't we, in relationships? And wisely so, we're careful how we give our hearts and who we give them to. Um, but as C.S. Lewis says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and maybe broken. But this is God doing this. This is God on the cross saying, look, here I am. If you're thirsty, if you're unloved, I love you. I'm not holding back my love from you. I'm showing you how I feel about you. I thirst sums up who he is. It's a microcosm of a deeper thirst that he has. Right now, Jesus needs water to survive, but he's always been thirsting. And that's why in his strength, he imitates weakness, vulnerability, because his thirst is deeper and it's a thirst for you. God is thirsty. We are thirsty. Next point. Anyone who's faced with any sort of love, display of love like that, is, is, is forced into the question, how do I respond? What do I do in the face of someone giving themselves like that for me? Um, and Jesus said in uh, the Gospel of John elsewhere, this verse, I think it will come up on the screen. He stood and shouted, I love that. He proclaimed it. He didn't just whisper it. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Notice how almost like him thirsting on the cross is a metaphor for his thirst for us, the position he would put himself in to find us. Here again, he's using that same metaphor of thirst. Is anyone thirsty? You're thirsty for water, but what else do you need? Jesus didn't need anything. Jesus could have legions of angels at his command in a word, but he had a thirst. 
The thirst was for closeness with us. And Christ is saying here in these verses, I have made you with that same thirst. I thirst for closeness with you. That's why I came. But I've made you, my people, with that same thirst. And humans, I guess, are by nature thirsty, aren't they? They're thirsty for happiness, thirsty for fulfillment, for satisfaction. All of us are in our own ways, in our own personalities. And yet there's this, this strange thing about the human condition. These mics aren't great for everything. <laughs> also, it looks like there's a kind of fly buzzing around the right side of my head. Um, humans are by nature thirsty for, for happiness, for satisfaction. And yet, we don't know how to quench our own thirst. You ever thought about how weird that is? When you're thirsty, you take a drink. But in terms of our, our thirst, our angst, why we're here, how we can live a good life, our satisfaction, we so often don't know how to do that. You know, it's, it's kind of like uh, drinking salt water. Everything we turn to to answer that question just makes us more thirsty. Sometimes those things are obvious, right? You look at an alcoholic, someone who's dulled the pain that they're in by drinking more and more and more. The more they drink, the more they need to drink until it destroys them. Or maybe some of you have been in debt before, similar. It's an easy relief, just spend more, it feels good. And suddenly you find yourself in a bigger hole than you were before. It doesn't work, it makes us more thirsty, doesn't it? But some things were a little more subtle as to how we plug that hole. Maybe we try to plug it with our financial security. Maybe we try to plug it with taking as much care of our health as possible. Good things. Things that are good, but things that will never fully plug that hole. A satisfying life. But here's the thing in Cambridge, as I was reflecting on this. Maybe this is just a personal thing for me. I think that a lot of the ways we try and plug that hole, a lot of the things we thirst after to plug that kind of thirst hole are hidden in Cambridge. Things like perfectionism. Things like trying to achieve the very best things that we can achieve so that everyone will know how great we are, praise us, and love us. If you imagine someone, a guy in Cambridge, for the sake of argument, let's call him Ed. Maybe Ed gets a lot of his uh, self-esteem, Ed gets a lot of his thirst quenching in life from the fact that he might do a really great job at the stuff he does, even the stuff he does for God. Maybe when Ed's composing things like sermons, he gets tempted to think, hey, maybe if I do a really, really good job on this, then everyone will like me. Maybe that will quench my thirst. Everyone will think I'm awesome when I lead worship, when I, when I do a talk. Um, you know, back when I was studying here at Cambridge, what that looked like was something different. It was, how well can I do at my degree? Not even a purpose for it. A great thing to want to do well at your degree. Not even a purpose to try and be the very best of the best for me just because a lot of my self-esteem was caught up in that. A lot of what I was thirsting for was that. And then when something threatens it, as it did for me in my finals, um, when I, I started coming down with some anxiety attacks, the whole thing can fall down like a stack of cards, can't it? And we realize we're just as thirsty. It hasn't worked. We've taken something good and put it in the wrong place. Well, God is saying, you know how you need water? Your need for me is like that. We have Psalm um, 63 up on here. This is what, again, David wrote. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole body longs for you. And sometimes we're going to find ourselves in these dry and weary lands that David's talking about here, in a dry and weary land where there's no water. The things we put our security in will crumble. And we realize that we put them in the wrong place. And at that point, we realize what we've really been thirsting for is him. 
What Jesus is saying is he says, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. As he's saying, I know the most satisfying way to live. A wholehearted relationship of love with me. That is the most satisfying way to live. I thirst, says Christ. I thirst for your company. Is anyone unsatisfied or unfulfilled? I have an ancient plan to quench your thirst because you thirst too. So maybe when you hear that tonight, you think, actually, I'm not sure about this whole Jesus thing. Um, My life's pretty good, and I don't feel very thirsty. Well, I'm glad for you that that everything is going well. Um, But I guess as I was reflecting on it, um, I was wondering, you know, remembering how when I felt like that before I knew the Lord, and, and thinking, you know, with love, you only really know how thirsty you are for someone or something when you meet them or when you experience it. Then you realize your thirst. And I could use my wife as an analogy here and embarrass her, um, but I thought I wouldn't, because that would be mean. It's kind of like music, right? Before I became a Christian, I was obsessed with music. It was my life. Played in all these bands. Uh, I didn't think music could get any better, the wide experience. But when I became a Christian, and I realized the purpose for music, it was like musically I'd been dead before. I wasn't thirsty to discover the meaning behind music, but when I discovered it, my thirst was quenched. I discovered a thirst I didn't know I had. You know, that's, that's what it's like when you meet this God. That's what it's like when you realize that the God who hangs on the cross is thirsting for you, and you, you develop that relationship of love, of closeness with him. When I first became a Christian at that time, I can remember thinking, it kind of seems funny now, this is amazing. Like God is real. I'll never be bored again. I, this is a real God. He really acts in our life. You know, we've seen him, the Transform Project, like the incredible ways that he's brought about money for that, that he's provided, that he's guided us through all of these stages. You know, God is real. He's alive. How, could, how I thought at the time, could I ever be bored again if the Lord is real and he wants to be close to me? That's what it feels like when you know the Lord. Maybe you're a Christian, you do know God. Um, but I just want to remind you, um, as I look at this passage, Psalm 63, God's not just thirsting for you to be saved. It's not just a one-time thirst. You know, we don't just drink water once. We go on drinking it. Are you still thirsty? Are you still thirsty for God? Is your thirst for Jesus the greatest passion of your life? That's a better way of putting it, isn't it? Are you thirsty for God? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, here I am. You know, which is great. It shows you're here because you're thirsty for him. Is your thirst for him, though, the greatest passion of your life? Because when it is, that's when we'll never be thirsty again, says Jesus. Charles Spurgeon says this about this thing, this this longing that God has for us, this thirst, and the thirst that we have for him. It is the longing of a soul, not for salvation, not even for the certainty of heaven but simply for the enjoyment of present fellowship with him who is in her soul's life, her soul's all. It is a panting after communion with God. Do you know what it is to feel that? I'm not asking you if you'd call yourself a Christian, if you'd turn up to church. I'm asking you, do you know what it is to know that panting after communion, the longing of a soul for God and God alone? Do you know what it is to pray like David? Your love is better than life. Because sometimes God uses the deserts, the dry and weary lands in our lives, the crises, to remind us that only he can fill that hole. 
And we pray, Lord, take this away. I don't want to feel like this. But in fact, what he's showing us is something else has come into first place in your life. And I want to show you again that my love is better than life. You know, thinking of the early church, that incredible verse challenged me every time that they joyfully accepted the plundering of their possessions. People came and destroyed their stuff and they were joyful. They accepted it. I mean, they discovered something. They discovered that God's love is better than life. And almost as that stuff got taken away from them, they realized the invincible value of God. They became more and more thirsty for him. And as they thirsted, their thirst was satisfied. As David Brainerd said, Oh, one hour with God infinitely exceeds all the pleasures and delights of this world. Do you know what it is to feel that? Have you felt that before? To finish this point and before I finish up, um, you'll be glad to know it's possible to thirst for God without a massive crisis happening in your life. Um, That's great, isn't it? Um, Here's a little test we can do. Psalm 27. I do like David's Psalms. You're probably picking this up. Um, Psalm 27, uh, David says, One thing I ask, only one thing do I seek, that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, that, that one hour with God, infinitely exceeding the pleasure and delights of this world, that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord all the days of my life to seek him in his holy temple. That was David's one thing. So I just want to challenge you. How do you complete that sentence? Think even about what you pray about. Probably you pray about a lot of really good things, and it's good to bring those things to the Lord. But how much do you pray what David prays? One thing I ask, only one thing that I, do I seek, that I might know that panting after communion, that you would quench my thirst, not with the stuff you give, but with you, with your love. So I just, just want to give a moment. Um, just, just think about that for a second. Close your eyes, just five seconds. One thing I ask, only one thing I seek. What do you pray about most? What do you seek after most? God is thirsty, we are thirsty, and finally the world is thirsty. Jesus looks at you and me, he says, I thirst for you, I went to the cross for you. But he also looks at others. He looks at others who aren't in this place and says, I thirst to know them too. And there's this amazing thing that happens, that as we drink of him more, as our thirst is quenched, as we discover that communion with him, that closeness with God, the thing he died for, we become a thirst-quenching people. You know, we're, we're made to be a fountain of the water of God, not a cup. It's meant to flow in and flow out. And that, that's why Jesus said in that John 9 verse we had, streams of living water will come out of them. If you come to me and you're thirsty, streams of living water will come out of you. you know, I will go out from you and quench others' thirst. You'll be the salt of the earth, if you will, as Jesus said elsewhere. You'll make people thirsty for me. The world is thirsty and we're thirsty, I guess, in physical ways and in spiritual ways. Um, you know, physical ways are need, poverty, distress, and spiritual needs, our separation from the Lord. But just insert yourself into John 19, insert yourself into our passage for a moment. Imagine for a second 
that you could go up to Jesus Christ on the cross and hold that branch to his lips. Imagine that you could provide some comfort to him in his moment of anguish by quenching his thirst. What a privilege that would be. Well, here's what Jesus said in Matthew 25. I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. The righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty? But the king will reply, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Or a better translation of that is, you did to me. It's completely direct. You know, we can think, as we think of the physical needs of the world, 4,500 people die of not having clean water every day. Or we think of the spiritual needs of the world. The amount of people in Cambridge who aren't in this place or any other church right now on Sunday, and we can get completely uh, blown away. Like, how do we do that? How do I quench the thirst of the world? Three points, and I finish with these. Firstly, it's accessible. Anytime... God's asked you to do something and you think it's not accessible to you, it's because we haven't understood what he's asking us to do. In Matthew 10, Jesus said, if you even give someone a cup of cold water in my name, I'll reward you. Now what that says to me is God's not interested in what we can't do. He's not interested in the fact that we think we're a rubbish evangelist or we have no idea how to meet those clean water needs. What he's interested in is our next yes inviting that one person to that event, giving up that small bit of luxury in your life that you might quench the physical needs of others, being kind to that difficult co-worker becomes much more accessible and yet more challenging because we can actually do that, can't we? Um, The second thing we can do, if you're really stuck, how do I quench God's thirst on the cross? How do I do that to Jesus? Think of the person who hates you the most. Think of the person you find the most difficult. Proverbs 25. If your enemy's hungry, give him something to eat. If your enemy's thirsty, give him a drink. Here's the third thing. Recognize that the amount you drink of God is the amount that you will make others thirsty. I'm going to get on my little soapbox here for a moment. Please excuse me. As we thirst after God... So our desire to quench the thirst of others and our power to quench their thirst with God will increase. What we do is we love to split worship into two halves. Worship is a lifestyle. Evangelism, works of justice. And worship service, what we just did. Singing to the Lord, you know, Lord, I give you my heart, I give you my soul. But what this shows here is that God is saying, you know, as you want to quench my thirst, what you will do for for me I want to see that in what you do for the least of my brothers and sisters in the world. As we thirst after God, we say, God, I want to quench your thirst. I would do anything to please you. I would do anything to love you. I would do anything to quench your thirst. And God says, here's what you can do. Go and quench the thirst of others. Our love for him propels us out into the world. And so suddenly, like, there's not that split between worship service or worship singing or prayer, or devotional life, and what we do out there. We realize the two are completely linked. You know, the greatest commandment, Jesus said in Mark 12. Here's the first commandment, the most important. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
We love him. We learn that communion with him, that closeness with him I've been talking about. We learn to thirst for him alone in the desert. We push out the other competing thirsts in our lives and put him in first place. And as we do that, we suddenly realize we must quench the thirst of others because that will please him. This quote from uh, A.W. Tozer really sums it up for me. God is infinitely more concerned that he has worshipers than workers. You know, what? Surely, God, you want us to evangelize the whole world. You want us to quench the thirst of all of those people, physical, spiritual. Of course I do, says the Lord. But if you love me, you'll be able to do that. If you learn to honor my presence, you'll be able to quench the thirst of others. Tozer goes on, unfortunately, most evangelicals don't share this concern. Most are reduced for the position where God is a supervisor desperately seeking help. He's trying to find as many workers that will come and bail him out of a tight spot as possible. If only we could remember that as far as his plans are concerned, God does not need us. And a worker for God who does not know how to worship the Lord is just piling up wood, hay, and stubble for the time when God sets the world on fire. I think we should work for the Lord, but I do not think we should ever work until we've learned to worship. And then out of our deep worship flows our work for him. Our work is only acceptable to him if our worship is acceptable to him. And I want to finish um, because I'm the worship pastor and I'm just going to kind of shoehorn worship, sung worship into everything. I'm really sorry. Um, by just, just challenging you with an application of our sung worship. Is the way that you worship in song, perhaps you find it difficult, perhaps you find it easy. We're all different in our personalities here. But if you put Psalm 63 back up on the, the screen, please, uh, Dave. Does that describe your worship? Is your worship a thirst? I don't even need to unpack that. You know what it's like when you thirst for something. You imagine David in the desert going, I'm feeling this craving for water in the desert, but Lord, it reminds me how I crave you. It reminds me how you are first in my life. I imagine him singing this psalm, mind, soul, and body. In your name, I will lift up my hands. I'm not just going to keep my love for you in here, something to contemplate. I'm not even just going to sing it. I'm going to place it in my body because I thirst for you. And when you thirst for something, your mind, your soul, and your body reflects it. If we want to make others thirsty for God, we need to be a people of the greatest commandment. We need to be a church of the greatest commandment. A church that learns to love the Lord, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because what is going to turn the world back to God is not churchgoers, it's pursuers of Jesus. Pursuers of God, people who are thirsty for God. Let's pray. In fact, I think it'd be great. Can we just stand? Thank you. It might be that, as I described that, you're in a position of um, saying, you know, I'm not thirsty for this Jesus. It's a need that I didn't know I have, but I want to find out more about him. Maybe you see the love he offers you on the cross and say, I want that. Or maybe you've known Jesus a long time, um, but perhaps you've been drawn to, um, to some of the other thirsts that you've put in first place. Maybe you've realized that your passion for him 
is not the greatest passion of your life right now. What we're going to do um, is we're going to sing that song, Lord, I give you my heart again. Um, I know we've already sung it, but it, it, it really sums up how God has given us his heart, thirsted for us, and, and we respond by thirsting for him. Uh, and I want to say during this song, just bring him that. Bring him the fact that you want to know him for the first time. Bring him the fact that you're thirsting for a fresh touch from him. And actually, you know what? Um, we're not going to do it with instruments. We don't need the instruments. We're going to do it with our voices. Um, use this as a time to commit yourself to him as a, a fresh. Um, Paddy will lead us. This is my desire to honor you, Lord, with all my heart, I worship you, and all I have within me, I give you praise, all that I adore is in you, Lord, I give you my heart. Give you my soul. I live for you alone. Every breath that I take, every moment I'm awake. Lord, have your way in me. This is my desire to honor you, Lord, with all my heart, I worship you, and all I I give you my heart, I give you my soul, and I live for you alone, every breath that I take, every moment I'm awake, Lord, have your way in me. Lord, I give you my heart, I give you my soul, and I live for you alone, every breath that I take, every moment.
have your way in me. And Father, that is our prayer. God, in every season of our lives, whether we find ourselves up on the, the top of a mountain uh, or in a dry and weary place, God, we pray that we would always thirst for you. Father, this wouldn't just be something that we sing tonight as we're gathered as your people, but Lord, as we go off into the different places that you've called us this week. Lord, we pray that we would be a people who are thirsting after you because you have thirsted for us. Lord, thank you for what we've heard tonight and we pray that you would help us to continue to thirst as we go out of this place. Amen. Yeah.